will fix you. What ho, damaged goods of the internet. This is We Will Fix You. Perhaps you were hoping for something else, but hope cleaves not to you. Your choices have brought you here, oh, quite yes. And here with us, to be fixed, you shall remain. If you would like that fixing to be at least specific, you can contact us at wewillfixyoushow at gmail.com. We might hear you. We might listen. We might fix you. I, this evening, am Roger Hart, three times winner of the Mobility Scooter Spelunking Speed Trials. Joining me is Miss Lucy Boys, author of the popular children's book, You and Me Are Made of Meat. It's true, we're delicious. And this is Mr. Dave Condry, mayonnaise with purpose. Good evening. Today's question. Dear Fixers, I've heard from several advice-giving people over the years a recommendation that in order to build good teams and in order to look after colleagues at work, it's good to talk to them. The recommendation being that you can just ask them if they'd like to go for a coffee and a chat. Now, I'm all for building good teams and looking after my colleagues, but I can't help feeling that this advice is off its tiny nut. I mean, going up to someone and asking if they'd like to go for a chat or a coffee is just the most horrifying and terrifying thing imaginable, right? Yes. Yes. Clowns. So I'm basically just looking for confirmation here. These people are, are implicitly assuming that you spent six months agonizing over exactly what words to open with, what time of day to ask, having built and rehearsed a solid list of topics they might find interesting to discuss, including elegant segues into the meaningful discussion you want to have, and at the appointed hour, carefully watching for a point where they're not fully engrossed in work and can be politely interrupted. That's the unspoken thing they're assuming, right? Six months is, incidentally, not an exaggeration. That would imply it was someone I knew quite well. Cheers. Anxiety is a dance, we know. <laughs> Who will begin our two-step? I will cha-cha-cha our way into cognitive fluency. Oh. A lot of people will assume that you can just talk to one another at any time and instantly resume work in the same headspace that you were in, with the same calculations and what have you. And that's obviously nonsense. Most people assume that the interaction has a low cognitive load, which is probably not true for everyone. People assume that there, there, there are people I know that drain me so completely and utterly in five minutes of conversation that I'm basically useless for the rest of the day. I'm sitting right here. It tends to be people who can't derive things from, from first principles. Like when you've got a data sense of very obvious points, they can't somehow come to the same very obvious conclusions about things. That I find that incredibly draining. But I'm not especially introverted, so I don't generally have problems with it. At the same time, I recognise that everyone's not the same as me. Not everyone's fully neurotypical, and even if they are, they have different degrees to which they wish to socialise at any given time. There are... No. No. Just, just no. No. 
So here's the thing, right? If you if you ever have had to manage other human beings, and believe it or not, some of us here actually have. I think it's only you. We have real adult jobs. Is it just me? Yeah. I don't line manage. I do a lot of stakeholder bollocks. But if you... Uh, sorry, another thing. If you, look at, if you look at how to deal with agile teams, for example, it, it doesn't involve forcing people into positions that they're uncomfortable with. It involves working with the people that you have. And that includes the ways that they like to communicate. You don't really mandate getting up and having a coffee and a conversation. You can work in other ways. And I would suggest working in other ways... Uh, that work for you. I uh, like to communicate by being a very angry man on Twitter. I'm, I'm not a very angry man, but I, I play one on the internet. Similarly, what a listener once asked, are they like when they are not playing those characters? Yes, but it was for the other podcast where we don't play any characters. Or do that voice. Or do that voice. You have other ways, you have other ways of interacting. So that you presumably at any job, there's email. Uh, there is probably some sort of messaging system. Those are prime meme fields. You can plant seeds of what we formally refer to as cat macros uh, and watch them grow into friendships and, and strong bonds of collegiate feeling. Collegiate feline. Weaponized insults work as a bonding exercise, but you have to know the person quite well. You don't have to work in ways that you are uncomfortable with, or if you're at a company that expects that of you, then a mistake has been made. You shouldn't be there, or they shouldn't have hired you. You fundamentally shouldn't have to budge that much to be on an, air quotes, effective team. There should be ways of working to how you want to work and have the team still get on. Because fundamentally, you're there to do the thing that you're there to do. And yes, that might be fractionally easier if you could have, uh, you know, some sort of mind-blowing eureka moment over a overly frothy coffee. But I doubt it. I don't think that sort of brilliant serendipity or... Strong personal bonds are necessarily going to happen when you're working somewhere in your mid-thirties. I think it's... Everyone's busy, right? They've got kids and houses and shit to do. We're not looking to be... It's not university again. Or just their jobs. Or maybe they don't like you, or maybe they've got enough stuff in their lives and they just want to do their job and fuck off home. The idea that you can fully optimise a person or a team for work is nonsensical as well. I think it's got a, an uncomfortable mainline to that sort of valley, mm. companies, your life, tedious-ass bro culture. Drink the blood of children to make yeah. yourself youthful. Yeah. I mean interns, not children. It's perfectly legit to just do your job and fuck off at the end of the day. You don't even have to like your is. You have to have good relationships with them, but you don't have to be pals. Yeah. Great if you want to. I'm not saying don't, but... There's a difference, yeah. There's a difference between being someone who wants to keep their head down and get on with things and talk occasionally when it's necessary, being deeply antisocial. And I think if you're staying on that right line of being present and not antisocial, then it's fine. Other people can budge. You don't have to. I um, I recently moved from a company that expects everyone to be bestest buds to a company where, where everyone expects everyone to be basically nice to each other but just get the fuck on with their lives. Honestly, it's not that different. Nothing's massively dysfunctional. Well then. 
and you as boys. We've, we've covered this slightly, but you are very much among friends here with this problem. Um, I very much struggle with sort of interrupting people, talking to people, and I don't feel like I have a right to talk to people. I um, recently went for lunch at an empty restaurant, and when I was nearly done and nearly ready to pay, the entire staff came out and started eating their lunch at a table centrally. And even though I had a place to be and another thing to do, although not a strict appointment, I could not bring myself to interrupt them and ask for the bill, even though that was a totally reasonable thing to do. I sat there for 20 minutes waiting for them to eat lunch for no reason other than anxiety. I get where you're coming from. Done similar things. Yes. And, you know, in stuff in work stuff is also hard. You know, what are you supposed to say to someone in the hallway? How are you meant to arrange your face so you look suitably pleased to see them, but you don't know how to make the faces humans make? I get anxious asking people to do stuff that is totally reasonable stuff that is 100% my job to ask them to do. This is not easy. Taking your question sort of on faith at first, if you want more of these social interactions, particularly with your own team, I say you've got to schedule and formalise the fuck out of them. There is probably some value in being spontaneous, but I think the really important thing is the talking and not how smooth and spontaneous the interaction was otherwise. So book it in the calendar. We're going to have coffee for 15 minutes each week to catch up and chat. If the people you manage also have social anxiety, which is entirely possible, this is a gift for them as well. There is nothing I like more than clear expectations scheduled ahead of time and nothing I like less than spontaneous interruptions about unknown or unannounced issues. Yes. I think it's also really easy to forget when you are the anxious person about social stuff that a lot of other people are too, even if they come across as more confident than you feel in some situations. So don't get too hung up on the idea that you're the only person who's bad at this. You're terrible. They're all amazing. They can smell the failure on you. They're expecting much more from you than you're actually giving them. It's quite likely that the people you're thinking about are actually all over the spectrum on sociability anxiety. Some of them would welcome this, some of them wouldn't, but it's not like you're in a box of can't do this and everyone else is in a box of desperately wants this. That is just not true. I say also put your facilitator hat on. You know, you're not actually trying to become this person's friend. You're trying to build relationships in the context of it being a good thing for the work that you're both trying to do. So treat it like a work obligation or a meeting and not a social interaction. It is a job to be done. So, you know, I am not good at spontaneously sitting down with people, kind of interrupting them when they're doing stuff, but I can step into a facilitation role when I need to, guide the conversation, interrupt people in that context because I'm actively channeling it. I'm essentially putting my head into a different mode, almost pretending to be someone else during that time. And that's, I think that's quite useful for any situations you find hard where you still kind of need to get it done for work reasons. You talked about sort of conversation topics, and I think you can, it's good sometimes to make a list of things ahead of time that might be useful to talk about or to get to know people better about. But again, this isn't the perfect set of questions to perfectly get to know a specific individual so that you can then be friends. It's like general stuff you could talk about with anyone from your team or anyone you work with, you know. What interesting things they're doing in their spare time doesn't have to be tech or project related. They're learning a new skill, they're playing a new game. Just what kind of stuff are they broadly interested in? What is their favourite X and why do they like it? You can also kind of Again, more formally framed, this is getting to know you better. You can try doing some whole team stuff. Some of the five dysfunctions of a team exercise is about trust building. You don't have to go through the whole process, but you can use some of them as starting points for conversations. You know, take your team to the pub for the afternoon and we're going to talk a little bit about ourselves and then let it kind of devolve into a sort of more casual social interaction. I think the other option is consider whether you actually have to do this or not. Would your team actually like it or is it just a thing that you've heard that kind of hypothetical, highly engaged people like from their managers? 
I mean, if you're managing someone, presumably have kind of more formal touch points than this, like one-to-ones or regular meetings, you could bring it up there. So it's the thing you're thinking of doing, but you're not sure if the team would like it or find it valuable. Is that something that the person will be interested in trying? And then you've got consent and buy-in from them in the beginning. You're not just asking them out of the blue. You've done some contracting up front. I think also to remember... What makes a manager good is not one size fits all. I've had managers who've talked a lot about personal and casual stuff and that was good because of the relationship we had and the work we were doing. My current manager doesn't do much informal stuff at all and that is fine, but I really care about them treating me fairly, knowing what my skills are, being useful when I need help from them, not about the everyday kind of social glue stuff. And you also talked about sort of looking after your colleagues and going kind of slightly wider than your team. Um, Something I found helpful is just turning up when there is group social stuff. So I spent a couple of years basically too scared to go to the pub, partly because it felt like the group of people who went to the pub were close-knit and I wasn't part of that group, and partly because I have massive hang-ups about doing things without being explicitly personally invited. So if it's just a, hey, turn up if you want to, I'm like, but why would you want me unless you specifically asked me? But I've actually recently started going a bit more, especially when there's a kind of concrete reason to, like someone's leaving drinks and I like the person. And it's okay, and it's not weird, and I talk to people there that I wouldn't necessarily talk to in a way that's not weird, and then we go back to our kind of normal interaction back in the office, but it sort of makes me feel a bit more connected, it kind of maintains that thread for me a bit, and so the more I let that go, the more likely I am to start not feeling invited, so if I keep it up a little bit, it gets easier to maintain. I think overall, though, I mean, how people just kind of casually hang out at work without agonising over it first, how people sort of go from, you're a colleague who I like to being friends outside of work, I've got no fucking idea. So if anybody does know, please tell me, because I would quite like some more friends. Oh, God, I agree with all of that. Mm. Um, You mentioned five dysfunctions. Yes. Some of our listeners may not be familiar with that. Indeed. This is a uh, book and framework by, I think, Patrick Lencioni to begin with, um, which is a hypothesis that teams tend to have five areas that can cause dysfunction, you know, the sort of trust, accountability, paying attention to results. These are the sort of points where a team that could do well will fall down and not be high performing. And the stuff I was referring to was specifically the kind of early trust building exercises. So you can do the whole rig and roll assessments and put everybody up on a spectrum and talk about what trust means to you. But some of it is just very basic assumption that you maybe not, you maybe new as a team, don't know each other that well, some kind of basic icebreaker getting to know you stuff, which can be helpful. There's a book and shit, it's good. It's narrative, it's not businessy, yeah. particularly they tell you a story about how a team became less dysfunctional, it's a very quick read. There, there's something else I very much liked in there, which was sort of hinted upon, go to the group stuff, take advantage mm-hmm, of the group mm-hmm. stuff. And the slightly more extreme pivot of that is, do you have an extrovert you can contract out to? Yes. Does your team have a non-obnoxious, this is the key, non-obnoxious person that doesn't mind inviting everyone for coffee? Outgoing for hire, yes. Can you can you contract out to someone and say, hey, team, who wants a cup of tea? Let's just go in. Because mm-hmm. if I can like ham-fistedly segue into my own of course, perspective please. on this. Um, permission. Permission is hugely psychologically important in these situations. And if you can contract out to an extrovert that will create a permissive space... Then maybe, not always, but maybe it might get easier. Um, I'm one of those terrible cunts that's nervous and shy and twitchy and fucked up, but somehow has some blagging strategies that comes across as outgoing and able to do this shit. And this is when I said just because other people seem more confident than you doesn't mean they are, and that's really important to remember, even when it looks like they've got this so much more than you do. I'm phenomenally broken, and the reason people don't realise is because it's about inertia or kind of that activation energy getting over the hump. 
Um, and maybe it takes me less to go to the hump than some more neurotic people, but I feel the exact same magnitude of fuckery until something gets me over there. If I'm comfortable in a situation, I can tap into my blagging faculties. But, for example, when I go to... I promise I'm going somewhere with this. Um, conferences mm. or interact with new people... I hunch up on myself. I don't know how to talk to people. I don't know. Mm. Like, I, because why? How could you? What, what right do I have to talk to that person? How dare I interrupt them? What permission do I have? What space do I exist in? And some of this is similar and some of this is not. And, uh, as a massive narcissist, I'm now just talking about myself. But... Tis the nature of the advice game. But approaching people is hard for the shy or nervous. Um, you talk a lot about feeling prepared and that's part of it needing permission and I kind of sometimes I think about animal behavior that friend or foe sensitivity the the, the sniffing and the eye contact and the dynamics the and this circling. is the problem in the hallway yeah, this is circling um... around each other how do I know if how do I know if I have permission to approach uh, don't sniff your colleagues but unless they smell really good this is so privileged it's fucking insane but I'm gonna go out there and then row it back Conferences are one of the places where I have to suffer the most anxiety. I enjoy going to them, they're a great learning space, but then I'm theoretically supposed to be networking and talking and I can't. Because I don't know how to talk to people. And my solution to this is to speak. I said it was going to be privileged to spark. Obviously you can't always weasel onto the speaker, Bill. If you're going to, like, at an ideal conference, you're going to be learning stuff so your everyone else is going to be better than you and you wouldn't, they wouldn't let you speak. But neuroses, neuroses, neuroses. But also for some people, talking in front of a big room of people is as bad as talking to people one-on-one. Yeah, is... so again, mm. this is not a one-size-fits-all, but it turns out public speaking is a thing I can do, whereas networking and socialising is a thing that I can't. And the thing that I've found is if you speak at a conference, you've pre-broken the ice with everyone and they have permission to approach you. Which some people may find more terrifying, I find less. Again, variable mileage. And it creates a permissive space in which it's okay to talk. And part of that is enacting something, is a persona, is, is creating a thing. And I don't know, I, I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about how fucking trite the phrase fake it until you make it is. <laughs> because the hard part is still starting. We're talking about permission to approach, we're talking about starting to talk to people. You can make five years worth of podcasts, for example. Mm. Yeah. And or then public art or seeing some or... people. This thing just sort of coalesced in my head around performance and inaction and permission to approach and kind of manufacturing permission. And I remember that I used to have a... It wasn't very good. I used to have a drag act. And part of the persona of this person was that they were... Ophelia would talk to people. Roger would not. Um, Ms. Ophelia Derriere at the pub that, where she was doing a shit, shit, shit and drag act could randomly talk to people and say hi in a way that Roger never ever could. And I got to thinking about the psychology of imposture. Have you considered disguises? I just, I just, I just want you to kind of come, turn. come with me on this journey. Where, uh, you could fix yourself. You know, we, we, we will fix you. We, we're here to fix you. But that sounds kind of hard and complicated. And I wonder maybe you could fix someone that isn't you and then be that person on a sort of for-hire basis. Like, have you considered the power of imposture? The experience I had doing drag or sort of putting myself out there on stage is of stepping into a temporary transitive identity that gives you permission to behave in ways that you wouldn't without consequence. And... It's not just about psyching yourself up or faking it until you make it. It's, 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 it's about creating a completely different space that you can briefly inhabit. The imposture is powerful. 
there's been a lot of really interesting writing about this. Um, there was a, a couple of books in 2005, 2006, respectively. Ruth Reichel, the um, then restaurant critic for the New York Times, and Nora Vincent, the kind of asshole feminist. Um, not asshole because feminist, asshole because some other asshole things she did. Uh, she was very, very anti-choice for a while. Not, I, I can't remember if she's wrote back on that, but though she went through a phase of not being a great dude. Um... Both wrote books quite close together. Nora Vincent's is called Self-Made Man. It's really interesting. Ruth Rachel's is called Garlic and Sapphires. And they both did these experiments of stepping into different identities. Ruth Rachel found that she was getting recognised reviewing restaurants and so dressed up and created ever more elaborate characters and found her kind of identity eroding as she blended into them and quite a weird experience. She's now Joe Rayner. He had to come from somewhere. Claire Rayner's fanny. Nora Vincent spent a year dressing as a man, basically, and doing a bunch of conventionally masculine things and had a massive identity breakdown at the end. But they both had very, very um, similar experiences of the psychology of imposture, which is this motion in a, in a few phases of massive enablement and freedom followed by the identity coming, crashing in and fucking them up. Mm. Can you seize hold of the first part of that to create a permission space without getting the second where identity erodes and you have a fucking breakdown? Disguises. Slight identity twist. Write a little bit of backstory, but not too much. Don't live in the character for too long. I also think it's easier to approach people the first time if you don't know them than it is if you know them a bit. I think there's a spectrum. Hi, I'm so-and-so, I've never met you, is far easier than I vaguely know you a bit. And it's, it's far harder than we know each other really well. If the first thing you are going to say to every single person as you stare them in the eye and shake their hand is call me Admiral, then you're on firm footing. And also in terms of permissions, there's something about a lavish tricorn that invites people to come and talk to you about it. Exactly. Start with the Admiral. That could be your first character. Mm. Long tail coat. Mm. Series of disguises, seriously. Create an imposture space where you can step out of yourself and into some... And just, just write a post-it note-sized description of the character. Not a lot. Give, you, give it RPG something. RPG character background. Yeah. Level. Yes. Um, you're a slightly lackadaisical dark elf that resents their heritage but found this gemstone this one time. Oh, stop playing Dragon Age. Just just follow Next Character Bot. There's a Twitter account. Where my next character will be a dwarfish ninja with low charisma that's a little bit like... It's actually genuinely quite funny. But seriously, create a bunch of characters, step into them and use them for your interactions. Hi, I'm Butterfingers the Rogue. Quite. And when I originally started writing this, I thought it would be the stupid joke answer, but... Actually, people might find it kind of charming, especially if it's deliberately ridiculous. The problem is if it becomes so ridiculous that people know it's a pose, then you don't get the advantage of the imposture. It's just your weird shtick, yes. So there's a tension there, but halfway between joke answer and serious answer, is there some character moment, some thing you could create that would create your permission space? If not, yeah, the thing I said earlier, contract out to your extroverts. They might as well be good for something other than just frightening us all. Yeah, because, I mean, they're usually twats, right? But every now and then people have some that aren't. Hmm. Well, I mean, there's that theory that psychopaths actually serve a function in society, so maybe extroverts do too. Yeah. Well, cheap protein. You and me are made of meat. And we are delicious. Made of meat. So tasty. (laughs) 